We're in a new, new series here this morning, and um, I know a couple others had wished you, but I want to say it again, just a happy Memorial Day weekend. Um, hope that you have a great weekend together, but especially want to thank all of you who have served before or are still serving in our military. Jerry and I, one of the greatest joys, I speak for both of us, of our life um, was the fact that God put us in ministry in Washington State before we came here, and it was a military town. The vast majority of people in the town were Navy, and the vast majority of people in our church were Navy, and uh, it was just such a privilege to be able to be a part of their lives and, and also appreciate at a much deeper level all the sacrifices made. So thank you all, and glad we have a few weekends a year that we get to honor you and, and uh, respect you again. So, um, well, we, uh, speaking of which, moving from Washington State, Jerry and I moved here this fall, this fall it'll be 11 years, so it was, we were driving out in August of 2006, and um, got in here in September, and kind of did a little bit of transition, and eventually we, we bought a house, I, I believe we, uh, we, they accepted our offer, we didn't sign on it yet, but they accepted our offer on November 1st, and um, was, was able to move in in December, stay with a family in our church for a couple months before we moved in. And uh, just curious, I know that's almost 11 years ago, but do you remember anything significant about the time frame of 2006 into 2007? If you don't remember exactly, maybe you think about buying a house in the fall of 2006 into 2007. It's what has been come known as kind of the, the housing uh, crash or housing collapse in the United States. Uh, here's, here's just a simple graph to show you. If you look along here, see the real high peak? That's when we arrived in Gettysburg and bought a house. Uh, that would be 2007, six-ish. And, um, and shortly after that, uh, the, the, the housing bubble collapsed and everything kind of fell to the ground. And I'm pretty sure, because we refinanced recently, uh, that our house is still not worth what we paid for it, uh, even with some remodeling we've done since we moved here in November. Now, don't feel so bad, because like others, and maybe some of you, we also sold the house in May of 2006, uh, which meant we made a ton of money on a house in Washington State we owned in 18 months, and then got rid of all of that when we bought the house here. So it, it ultimately was good equilibrium across the board, I suppose, if you want to look at it that way. Um, but this was, a, this was a big deal in our, in our economy and in, in, our, in, our, in our nation here, some of which we are still, really still dealing with and, and reeling from kind of how we got there. And my, my brother, who is in the banking world, uh, told me about a movie. I don't know that I can endorse it. It's, it certainly has some language that is just not appropriate for any, any age, but he, uh, he told me about this movie called The Big Short. Fascinating, fascinating movie. I hadn't seen it with Christian Bell. And basically, is based on mostly true events of how the whole housing market crashed and what happened subsequent to that. And Christian Bell played a, a guy named Michael Burry, who I, I believe that's his name or not. He played a true character of somebody who is this really eccentric hedge fund manager. Uh, hedge fund is kind of a, 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 a group of people or business that puts together tons of money, investment capital that people have, and then they invest it to give return to people who, who have made good money. You have to have a lot of money to, to order invest into a hedge fund, typically, and this guy did. And uh, so this, this guy, uh, Michael, Michael Burry, he, at least in the movie, I'm not sure if he had an actual disorder or not, but they, they really show him as being very eccentric. He probably would think he maybe has Asperger's or autism. He would go in his office 
and shut the blinds and just blare rock music like all day and night as he was just looking over reports. And it was so interesting because nobody else caught this before him, but he started realizing what the market was built upon. And it really was, it was borderline illegal. But what, what they did for years um, before, before the, the early 2000s is um, banks and or investors and different people would lump together big groups of mortgages, which in those days were considered very secure. People paid off their homes. So they would lump all these together and create these kind of like mortgage bonds that people could invest in. And they usually brought great return for decades and decades because people were faithful at paying off their mortgages. Problem was, as, as real estate went up and everybody thought they should get a home, that home loan companies started handing out loans like candy to people, and we created this, this industry, what they called subprime mortgages. Forgive me if, if I lose you here, but if I can understand this, I guarantee any of you can. And what, what they did was that subprime mortgages are basically used to have, have to have a good credit rating in order to get a loan, at least a big loan. But banks started just loaning out to people that had subprimes, like not a good credit rating, which could mean they knew that someone was going through a divorce or they were paying a lot of alimony or they, they had always had a bad history of employment or right now they didn't have a job, but they were given loans out because there was this idea that everything is going up in value and you could just sell it in a few months or a year later and make money. I mean, that, that's what happened to us in Washington State. And so it just kept going and going and going. And so what this guy realized, he's looking through thousands and thousands of pages that nobody was looking at the detail. And he started to realize, my goodness, these things that we're selling as mortgage bonds that all look secure are not the A and AAA and AA mortgages that were being used for decades. They're, they're lumping together thousands and thousands of loans that people are going to go default on very soon. So he took a billion dollars. This part of the story is true. He took a billion dollars of investment in his hedge fund and he bet against these mortgage bonds, nobody's ever done it. He goes into these big companies, Merrill Lynch, these companies, and he's like, I want to bet against these, these bonds, they're going to fail, and they laugh at him. And they're like, yeah, sure, you can do that. And he's investing hundreds of millions. He almost gets fired because he, the people find out in the hedge fund what he did, and he says, he, he just, he, he doesn't let anybody take their money back. He stops answering the phones, and he just waits. And you know what? He was right. People started defaulting on their loans. All these people had variable rate loans. Remember those? And they all came due after five years and people couldn't refinance because they didn't have anything. And it crashed. And he made, no joke, he actually felt very depressed about this. He made $2.69 billion built on an economy that he knew was going to fail because people just kept giving loans out to people that they knew could not repay them. It's really interesting. The reason I, the reason I start off with this is we're in a new series and, uh, and it correlates with a book that we are going to be selling in the back called Soul Keeping. Subtitle of the book is Caring for the Most Important Part of You. And when I think about what happened with the mortgage crisis, I think this is what oftentimes happens in the human heart and in the human condition. But let me just tell you really quick, I, I hope you can pick it up. Um, we, we got a real, I don't think you'll find a better deal anywhere. So we're, we're selling for 10 bucks, but here's partly why we're selling them, because I couldn't get it cheaper. They only have hardback and... So I know some of you can pay 10 bucks, so thank you to those that you can. But if you can't afford 10, then just take a copy or give $2. I don't care. I would love everyone in our church to have a copy of this book. I'd like you to read it through the summer when your lives are scattered and you're on vacation, you're going here and there, and you're not able to be at church or be connected. Use this book to remind you to stay connected to God and the most important, of your, most important part of your life to staying connected to God, your soul. And we'll talk about what that is in a moment. But I just want you to pick it up. It's back at the Welcome Center. Um, if you can, it's 10 bucks. If not, just 
pay what you can and go with it. We want you to have it. We're gonna do a whole sermon series here through the end of June on this topic. And so let me come back to this. So the picture of the human condition. The soul is, is, is this important part of our life and it's what I wanna call the, the inner part of our life. And I'll get to that in a second. But, it's, but oftentimes it's not what's on the outside that creates a problem. In fact, I would say virtually in every instance when there's a collapse, when there's an issue, when there's a problem in life, it's not what happened on the outside, but it's what's happened on the inside. It's kind of interesting just thinking about this whole series and this topic and the, uh, the death just this last year, I guess it was, of the, uh, the rock legend Prince, right? When this man ha- had done so much for decades uh, with, with music and writing music, unbelievable talent, and he passes away. And sadly, I mean, whether you, you, you like Prince or not, sadly, his death became not so much about all that he accomplished as a musician, but it came, became more questions about how he died. Do you remember that? And there was all this speculation because really they found out, I think he was abusing opiates and, and other type of drugs, but prescription drugs especially, that he was, he was hooked on painkillers and probably died from some sort of overdose and had multiple overdoses. This is exactly what I'm talking about today, and it's not just that Prince faces this issue. We all do. On the outside, everything can look wonderful, but what matters is, is what's happening on the inside. Brian Wolmer, if you know him in our church, I remember him telling me when I moved here 10 years ago, he's, he works for the gas company, he said, Mark, it's crazy. He goes, I go into these homes, big, beautiful homes. They have four or 5,000 square feet and he's fixing the gas or he happens to go in the house to do something. And he, I'll never forget, he said, Mark, I was in this home the other day. It didn't have any furniture. They had some patio plastic deck furniture in, off of their kitchen to eat in a dining room and they had nothing else in the house. Right, so it looks great, you're in this neighborhood, people are driving in, shutting the garage, look at, look at that big, big, beautiful home they have, and look at those nice cars, but absolute emptiness on the inside. Well, that, that's bad enough, let's say, in the physical sense of being deceptive between what's on the inside and what's on the outside, but this happens all the time in our human nature, doesn't it? I, I did a wedding yesterday, and this is what I admonished the couple with. I, I told them they have to grow in intimacy, and intimacy has been wrongly misunderstood or really reduced to mere sexuality or, or romance. And we're not downplaying sexuality or romance. It's, that's what our culture has done, basically saying, well, that's intimacy. And I read you an article spread throughout the UK that said, no, it's not. That, that ultimately intimacy is something bigger and something greater than that, which elevates sexuality and romance. But in romance, like, we don't, we don't let people know our bad sides first, right? I mean, guys that haven't showered in two weeks, they take a shower before they go on a date, right? They brush their teeth. I mean, they wear respectable clothes, hopefully, right? Because you, you don't want to try to impress somebody with, with how you really are, you really behave, you, 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 you put your best foot forward. And so we're so used to this that, that we, we, our outsides look good, but what's going on on the inside? Someone may look brilliant, may look like they know so much and they have it all together and yet on the inside they're filled with grief, they're filled with worry, they're filled with anxiety, they're filled with depression. Someone looks like, boy, they they got all the answers at work, they got it all put together, but their insides are completely disorganized, their insides are falling apart. They struggle with with feelings of suicide or, or in, self-affliction of injuring themselves, on and on and on. You, you see it all the time. You can't just judge by the outside. You have to look at the inside. And as this book will tell us and as our sermon series will look at this because the scripture tells us this, that what's on the inside is the most important part. It's the most important part. When the inner life goes default, the whole system goes bankrupt. 
Think about the mortgage crisis. This is what we do with ourselves as people is that our lives are, 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 are taking out loans that our souls cannot repay. And we're getting busier and we have more things going on and we're doing more and yet our insides are not able to keep up with all these loans that we're doing in order to stay up on life. So soul keeping, caring for the most important you and I'm gonna call this, this series instead of soul keeping like the book, I'm gonna call it soul keepers because that's what we're supposed to do. We're, we're gonna be taking care of our souls. And so let's just start with a basic simple question. So what is the soul? What is the soul? John Ortberg, who wrote this book, quotes Dallas Willard, and I think it's just a good, simple definition of what the soul is. The soul is the life center of human beings. The life center of human beings. There's a lot of uh, talk and debate theologically. People come up with kind of systematic theology or systematic understanding of the human person, human nature, and sometimes they like to really try to get it, like I said, systematic. Well, there's body, there's soul, and there's spirit. And the Bible is not quite that cut and dry. Sometimes it seems like there's three, and sometimes it just seems like there's two. And my point is certainly not to try to figure out us from that physiological and spiritual standpoint, but just to merely say, when we're talking about the soul over the next few weeks, we're talking about the, the immaterial part, the, the non-physical part of our life, at least on the surface, and talking about what's on the inside. That's why I like that definition, the life center. John Ortberg says, page 43 of the book, your soul is the deepest part of you and it is the whole person. It is often simply a synonym for the person. And you know, I, I, it's not that I feel anything negative or critical or judgment from you guys, but in both services today, when I, I can feel it even in the room when you speak. You start talking about not what's on the outside, but what's really on the inside. And there's just a nervousness that comes over our lives because I've found that, that most people really don't disclose really who they are to people around them, and that even includes their own spouses. I mean, I'm not surprised anymore when a husband or wife just tells me, I thought I knew my spouse, but I really don't. I, I just, I'm, not, I'm not surprised anymore. We do such a good job, like I said, at putting our best foot forward and only letting people know what's on the outside that what's deep down inside may be ready to collapse but my prayer for you and my encouragement, I hope that as you read this book, you get the, the boldness and the courage to know, you know what? God knows everything that's going on on the inside. He still loves you, and he says he'll be with you if you're, if you're brave enough to say, you know what? Let's stop having this, this dichotomy or this difference between what's on the inside and the outside. Let's bring these two things together. The soul is the life center of a human being, and we're looking at it as the inner part. So let's look at Proverbs 4.23. You started there and held your place. It says this, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Above everything else, guard your heart. And the other versions, it says, for out of it flow the springs or the issues of life. When you see the word heart in the scripture, it's talking about kind of this complete personhood of a, of a being. It, I think it's only once or twice in all of scripture that the heart actually is talking about the organ of the heart. This Hebrew concept, more Hebrew than, than Greek for sure, but this Hebrew concept of the heart is this all-encompassing kind of who you are as a person, and that's what we're talking about here with the soul. Let me, let me show you the definition. You'll see it's, it's, it's just broad. It's the inner man or woman, the mind, the will, the heart, the understanding. It is the seat or the center of our emotions, passions, appetites. It is where we make determinations and resolutions of our will. It is uh, our inner, it's our mind, it's our knowledge, our thinking, our reflection, our memory, and simply can refer to any of the three personality functions of emotion, thought, or will. <laughs> Basically, 
when it says to guard your heart, it's saying to guard all that makes up who you are on the inside. Your, your feelings, your thoughts, your will, I mean, everything that kind of makes up who you are. And I, I think, in, you know, used as kind of a sad illustration, but it's one that's part of my life and probably part of some of yours, is I, I think this is what makes diseases like dementia and Alzheimer's so, so uh, difficult and so tragic in our lives. I remember when I was in uh, junior high, my, my mom's mom, Grandma Hilda, came to live with us. <laughs> and uh, she was starting to get old, and my mom noticed, it was before Alzheimer's was really talked a lot about, and she noticed that something wasn't right in, my, in her mom's mind, and she wanted her to come live with us. And I love Grandma Hilda. Grandma, I, at the time, I was learning to play the trumpet. And uh, she would listen to me and say, that's just the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And let me tell you what, it was nothing, but it was not beautiful. Uh, nobody else wanted to listen to it, but she just, she just loved it. And it was a great couple of years. That was one of the years my mom homeschooled me. She tried that for one year. I was like, this ain't working out. Uh, I'll give you to the school teachers and let them deal with you. Uh, and so, so I, I was home with her a lot for one year, Grandma Hilda, and her and I bonded. But I could see it in her, and eventually, after a couple years, my mom had to put her in a home because she got to a place where she just was not able, my mom wasn't able to keep up and take care of her because she needed constant care as Alzheimer's had totally taken over her, her, her life. Now, here's what's interesting. Her body still worked. She could walk, she could talk, she could eat. She didn't need anybody to do the bodily functions. In fact, in some ways, her mind still worked. She could remember stories from when she was a kid, though she couldn't remember who my mom was now or who I was. But her mind in some ways still works. In, in, in essence, and I know this may not be correct medically, but it's how I felt as a kid, it's how I still think about it, is that Alzheimer's robbed my grandmother of her soul, of who she was. And I'll never forget those days that my mom, I'd go with my mom or my mom would come home from the, from the, the home that she was at and my mom would be bawling because Grandma Hilda, who was this nice, beautiful woman, she graduated from Bible college, the same one I graduated from in 1940. And she was a sweet lady and just loved people, but she would treat my mom like dirt. She had no idea who my mom was, but she would just treat her. She would say things nasty to her and tell her she didn't want her around and she couldn't stand her. And it's hard for my mom, and if you've been around, you know what it's like. But here's, here's what makes it so difficult. Hilda's still there. Her body's still there. She's still functioning as a person. But who Hilda is and who Hilda was was gone. And it, it robbed that person of that soul. Now, we say things like this. Let's bring it down to our own lives. We say things when we, when we make a comment to someone and we say something nasty, we say something mean to them. Have you ever said this or heard someone say, I'm, I'm really sorry, I, I, I didn't mean that, that's not really me, I don't know what came over me. We probably should just make a, an agreement after the series that we never say stuff like that again because we are lying to ourselves, which may be part of the problem. Because something doesn't come over me, something came out of me right? If I mistreat you or I do something wrong to you, it's not because I don't know where that came from. It, if, you, if that really is true, you don't know yourself very well because I'll tell you where it came from, from inside, from your soul. I'm sorry I snapped at you. I, I'm, we like to blame our circumstances or I'm busy, there's a lot of pressure at work, but at the end of the day, it is our soul, it's our personhood which comes out of us. We'll talk about that in just a moment, point two. That, that we really shouldn't try to even betray somebody else or even ourselves to think, well, I don't know where that came from. Well, I can tell you where it came from. That's who you are. That's your soul. That's your inner person. And if you're snapping or you're doing things, that's a warning sign for you not to blame the pressure or work or, or somebody else, but to say, I need to take care of something on the inside of me. And that's the reason why this is happening. 
Right, Jerry and I joke all the time. We were like the nicest, like loving people. We had no anger in our lives until our kids were born and then they gave us anger. They gave it to us. I never had anger before. Nathan, he came out, he was so beautiful and he gave me anger. No, you know what? It's not my kids that make me have an anger problem. It's my soul. It's my soul when that anger comes out. And that's who I am. And I can blame them and blame them and I'll never grow if I keep blaming other people for what's coming out of me. That's why he says, and I agree, and the Bible supports it, that this is the most important part of you. Psalm, or Proverbs 27, 19 says it this way, as a face is reflected in water, so the heart reflects the real person. As, as water or a mirror reflects who you are physically, your heart reflects who you are. It's, your soul is who you are. It's what makes you, you, your character, your values, your beliefs, your passions, your interests. John Ortberg says in the Bible, your soul is like the king piece in chess. In a way, it's the most limited piece. It can only go forward or to the sides or back, I believe. <laughs> um, but it only does one move at a time. Most other pieces do mul- have, have bigger moves and go further places. But here's the deal. You can lose all of them, but you lose the king and it's game over. You can try and have all these moves and have all these things going on in your life. But when you lose your inner life, when, you're, when your life on the inside and your soul collapses, game over. Game over every time. That's why it, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 16, 26, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can someone give in exchange for their soul? Rhetorical questions, nothing. It's who you are. And you can't trade any amount of fame or money or relationships or whatever it might be for who you are. You only are who you are. There's no one else like you. And we oftentimes read this verse, John Ortberg kind of points this out, I thought it was interesting. We think about it as Jesus just talking about heaven or hell. Well, just make sure that you have your soul right so that when you die, you go to heaven and you don't go to hell. And that may still be true that Jesus came to save us from eternal separation from God. But he makes the great point that Dallas Willard, another writer, does that says this is just as much about a diagnosis as it is about a destination. It's very true. We see it in people's lives like Prince, like I said a moment ago, and many others, as well as our own, that maybe in in some ways we've gained the whole world, we've gained all of this that people would want or what we strive for, and yet it doesn't seem right because the inside is not right. So what can you do? What can you exchange? You can't. Your inside has to be healed. It has to be made right. So that is what the soul is, is this life center. But number two, you must know this about the soul. It's so important. The soul integrates, though, all that you are all that I am. It integrates all of that together. Let me read you again, Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. There's, a, there's one Hebrew word for that phrase, you do flows from it. And, it's, and it, what it means is this, it is the place from which everything proceeds from. Think of it as a gate. Think of it as a gate. So what the Bible is saying is that your soul, your, your heart, your, your, your inner person, I mean, this is, this, you have this inner person, you have this soul that's inside, but it's not only just that it's there, but that everything you do and you think and you say and that you become comes through the gate of your soul, comes through the gate of your inner person. That's why this is so important. John Ortberg says, what is running your life, I think he's quoting Dallas Willard again at this, but anyway, what is running your life at any given moment is your soul. Not external circumstances, not your thoughts, not your intentions, not even your feelings. All that's happening, but 
It's your soul that's running it. The soul is that aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of the self. So it influences everything you do. And he gives this diagram in the book. It looks kind of like this, that we have our will, which is where we make our basic decisions. We have, uh, I'm going to do this, or this determination, this resolute, uh, make a resolution, I'm going to go here, go there. But it's kind of where we make these decisions. Our mind is, in, in, the, in the biblical term, mind is your thoughts, but it's also your emotions, it's your feelings and your passions. Your, your body is, of course, your body. It's, it's, it's how we function. It's the, it's the encasement of all of these things that are immaterial, but it also has its own desires and its own appetites, but it's the soul that basically wraps all this together and integrates it. And I'll maybe use this as an illustration for you this morning is maybe you've heard of the Situation Room that's at the White House under, underground in the West, West Wing. It's um, for the president where he gets together with all of the intelligent commu- intelligence communities. They also, it's just a big conference room, but they also call it the Intelligence Management Center, which I know some of you are like, there's not much intelligence flowing through there, but that's okay, we'll talk about that another day. But they have this big room that, that everyone meets in. That's where the president usually has his daily briefings, they talk about what's going on in the world. But here's the point of the Situation Room. It's where all the information is supposed to be gathered and collected into that place where a whole bunch of advisors meet and then talk about and make decisions about what to do with all the information they just shared, the Situation Room. One of the most famous pictures out of the Situation Room, I mean, it's been used since I think Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, Bill Clinton used it, Um, but one of the most famous pictures was during Obama's presidency when they um, were capturing bin Laden. I don't know if you remember this, it looked kind of like this. Oh, no, that's not it. I, I just thought that was kind of funny. There they all are right there. Okay, you guys awake? All right, go ahead. Go to the real one. All right. That's what it looked like, right? And so they're looking at the monitors at, in the moments that they're capturing bin Laden. Here's, here's the deal. You, you can go off that, Joe. Catch what I'm saying about the soul. The soul is the place where the feelings in your body and the appetites, where your thoughts, where the emotions where your decisions, it's all filtered through, and it's like your soul is that group of advisors at the, at the situation room, but the, the group of advisors that's in your heart that makes decisions, right? I mean, virtually anybody, anybody in this world, because we're human beings, we face temptation. People get married, whether it's a husband or wife, at some point along the way in their life, virtually everybody will feel the temptation to break off their covenant, their faithfulness commitments, and, 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 and have an affair with someone who's not their husband or their wife. And a lot of times, I've heard it too many times before, I just, I just couldn't control myself, it's just, I have these, these urges. No, 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 here's the problem. The situation room, it was broken. Your body doesn't go off and do something. It all comes through the gate of your inner man and inner woman. And when your inside is broken, Information gets filtered and instructions are sent out and they may be good or bad. That's why the Bible says you better guard that heart, that inner person, your soul, because that's where you're going to do things. People have thoughts and feelings. I don't think that person likes me. You know, they they said something to me and and I don't even really like them. And those thoughts come in and those feelings towards somebody. And we could say, well, you know, and we talk bad about them and we can blame them or blame things that we're saying or I have a hard time controlling my tongue. But at the end of the day, the Bible says, no, 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 no. All that's coming from inside in the soul. 
That your, your thoughts and your feelings, they, they come through the situation room and your soul decides, what are we going to do? Are we going to believe in that? Are we going to choose to forgive? Are we going to do this in that situation? Over and over and over again. Your body, your, your mind, your, your emotions, your will, it's all coming through your soul, which takes it and then makes decisions on how you're going to act and sends instructions to the rest of your life. It is your soul that decides to hold a grudge. It is your soul that decides to have an affair. It's your soul that decides to stick to your values and your principles. It's your soul that decides not to cheat or to steal. It's your soul. It's what all those things of who you are that come out of that gate that you make decisions in your life. And that's why that diagram is so important because your soul is integrating all these things together. Again, from the book on 43, your soul is what integrates your will, your intentions, your mind, your thoughts and feelings, your values and conscience, your body, your face, your body language and actions into a single life. A soul is healthy when there's harmony between these three entities and God's intent for all creation. So lastly, for Proverbs 4:23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Notice the first three words there that says, above all else. Quite simply, it just means nothing should have greater priority in your life than this. And why is that? Well, you've now heard me talk about it. If the soul is the very life center, and your soul is basically integrating and and affecting everything you do, well, then there's nothing more important to guard in your life. But the bottom line is, we don't do a very good job of guarding our hearts. We don't do a very good job of guarding the inside. To guard means to just simply to guard, to watch, to watch over, to keep, to preserve. John uh, Ortberg starts with a a short story at the beginning of the book, and I'm going to read this to you. kind of sets the tone for our whole series, and this morning it says this. There once was a town high in the Alps that straddled the banks of a beautiful stream. The stream was fed by springs that were old as the earth and deep as the sea. The water was clear like crystal. Children laughed and played beside it. Swans and geese swam on it. You could see the rocks and the sand and the rainbow trout that swarmed at the bottom of the stream. High in the hills, far beyond anyone's sight, lived an old man who served as keeper of the springs. He had been hired so long ago that no one could remember a time when he wasn't there. He would travel from one spring to another in the hills, removing branches or fallen leaves or debris that might pollute the water. But his work was unseen down at the town below. One year, the town council decided they had better things to do with their money. No one supervised the old man anyway. They had roads to repair, taxes to collect, and services to offer. And giving money to some unseen stream cleaner became a luxury, well, they just simply couldn't afford. So the old man left his post. High in the mountains, the springs went unchecked. Twigs and branches and worse muddied the liquid flow. Mud and silt compacted the creek bed. Farm waste turned parts of the stream into stagnant bogs. For a time, no one... And the village noticed, but after a while, the water wasn't the same. It began to look brackish. The swans flew away to live elsewhere. The water no longer had a crisp scent in the, in the, uh, that drew children to play by it. Some people in the town began to grow ill. All noticed the loss of the sparkling beauty that used to flow between the banks of the streams that fed the town. The life of the village depended on the stream, and the life of the stream depended on the keeper. The city council reconvened, money was found, and the old man was rehired. Yet another time the springs were cleaned and the stream was pure. Children played again on its banks and illness was replaced by health. The swans came home and the village came back to life. The life of a village depended on the health of the stream. The stream is your soul and you are the keeper. It's a great little story to remind us 
that if our soul is our life center and our soul integrates everything we do, the final point is just that we are to guard our soul well above all else, above all else. And, and I think we can do that in a few simple ways. The soul needs restoration, that's how we guard it. We guard it to make sure that it can be replenished and restored and refreshed. You see, once they got rid of the, the keeper of the stream, it got filled with all kinds of junk and it just did not flow anymore and wasn't flowing purely. And we need to have times where we refresh and replenish and we restore. The great uh, passage in Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside quiet waters and he refreshes my soul. So interesting that it says that God makes us lie down. Notice, it's not just saying that God is the one who, who restores or refreshes our soul. He's part of the process. But there's things that he makes us do that help us restore our soul. And quite honestly, I mean, maybe some of you are good at this, but the rest of us, myself included, aren't so good, even though we complain all the time, I wish I just had a day off, I, I just wish the things would slow down. And then once we get it, what do we do? You know, there's a whole bunch of things I could get done. You ever feel that way? Oh, finally, have a half a day off. And what do you do? Do you sit and rest? Do you replenish your soul? No. You know, I've been wanting to clean out the garage. You know, I've been meaning to take down that tree. You know, I, I really should catch up on the laundry. You know, I, I'm grateful for you as a church, and maybe some of you hadn't heard, we've been talking about it for a few weeks, but I'm grateful for this time, the sabbatical that you're, you're giving myself and my family during the month of July and August. I, I don't lie down real easily. You know, and most of you know that because you haven't really joked with me about, um, oh, you're just getting all this time off, you'll be playing golf. Most of you know me well enough to know, like, most people have come up to me and said, this is not going to be easy for you, is it? No. I've been trying to practice a half a day of sitting still. That's not easy. But I know through the midst of my life and the course of our church and the things that we're doing that I feel that God is telling me, you must lie down. I mean, I always talk about it. I want the quiet waters and the green pasture, but it's another thing to actually do it, to replenish my soul, for you to replenish your soul. And we just, frankly, don't take much time to restore our souls. And we betray ourselves because we say we want to and we say it's important, but is it? Let me, let me challenge you as, as an announcement sermon illustration today. Summer camp is due here next week and the following week for our kids and for our youth. Let, let me tell you how important it is for you to invest in your kids' inner lives, in their souls of what God wants to do. I did all the sports camps and so do our kids when I grew up. I did soccer camp and baseball camp. I even did some band camp. I was a nerd. Uh, that's okay. I played a few instruments when I was younger. and All those were great, but you know what? My life was changed when I encountered Jesus at camp. He only made me better in all those other ways, in profession and athletes and, and relationships. But here's the deal, and I know the pressure that we feel, I'm a parent myself now too, that we wanna get our kids into these things to set them up for college, to set them up for, for athletics and sports, but let's just be honest, what message are we sending? Usually, the outside is much more important than what's happening on the inside. I mean, if it really comes down to it, you really need to do this so you can get a scholarship for college. Let me ask you, parent, I think you know this, I already know this, and I, my oldest is only eight, but what good is college to a kid whose life is being destroyed on the inside? Think they're gonna learn something? Think they're gonna go from that and benefit it? Think they're gonna be able to use that for a career? No. Before we even think about setting up futures in colleges and sports and, and, and drama and education and all these things, we better make sure that the inner life of our kids are ready for it because no great, the best education in the world will do nothing if the inside is ready to collapse. 
So what's the message you're sending? I'm, I'm just telling you today, I was a youth pastor for 15 years. Send your kids to camp. It'll change their life, not just make them better at one particular part of their life, only polish the outside. It will change them on the inside. Can't tell you enough. Do it, send them. But how about you, parents? When's the last time you've invested in the inside, in your, in your souls? We read books on dieting, taking care of our physical bodies. We, we read books about leadership to be better at the job that we do or, or the place uh, that we work or to become better at, at what we're doing in our field of expertise or, or the things that we know. How often do we work on the inside even though we know, we know that it's true that it's the most important part, but our actions betray that. And our life gets filled with all the things on the outside and I worry that we are only setting ourselves up to become more and more people like Prince, and many of us are there. Listen, he says in the book, if your soul is healthy, no external circumstances can destroy your life. If your soul is unhealthy, no external circumstance can redeem your life. This is true. So if you're gonna guard your soul, you've got to restore it. You've gotta replenish it. Um, secondly, really easily, souls need harmony. They need consistency, in other words. They need to have consistency on the inside and out. If you have a recipe, they oftentimes say to, to mix the batter, mix it to a certain consistency that everything is mixed together. The problem with, with, a, with uh, something you're making with, with a, an ingredients or a recipe that you have is the same thing in your life, that if you don't have the same consistency on the inside and the outside, you are a recipe for disaster. John Ortberg in the, quote, in the book quotes James and just part of that verse in James 1.8 talking about someone who, who wants God's wisdom and then doesn't listen to it says they're a double-minded person and they are unstable in all they do. When we don't have the consistency of our inner life with the outer life, we become unstable. And he uses the illustration, I think it's a great one, of sinkholes. You remember that resort in Florida a couple of years ago? It's like one of the biggest sinkholes I've ever seen. An entire resort crashed in on a sinkhole. I mean, you can see it around the grass. I mean, that's unbelievable, huge sinkhole. And you know, maybe that's just kind of like, whoa, check that out, but go to, go to the next slide. Here's one that just happened right between two homes. I want us to think about this one. Because some of you here today, I won't say maybe, I know you are, I mean, I, I know it in my heart. Some of you are here today, this picture describes your life right now. No, your whole house isn't ready to cave in, but this, this, this series, this book, listen to me, this book could be something that God will use by his spirit to prevent a sinkhole from not just catching the, the corner of your foundation of your life, but totally sinking your entire life. You know, your marriage still has a chance, and your, your, your job still has a chance, your relationship with your family or your kids, your, your, your faith and your relationship with God still has a chance. It's not, over, it's not over yet, but how do you get harmony? Well, I can tell you it's not anything fancy, it's not anything exciting, but it's something important. The way you get harmony in your life is that you confess and you repent. Confession breaks disharmony because it confesses, it, it opens up what is not consistent. So to talk to God, but not just God, to talk to your spouse, to talk to a pastor, to talk to a friend, to talk to a counselor and say, this is a gaping hole in my life and nobody knows it because it's under the surface. And I'm challenging you today, if you go much further, that thing may not just be under the corner of the foundation of your house, but it may suck in your entire life if you're not careful. And it all comes because there's not harmony. There's a void under the surface and that's unstable. It always will be unstable. And the, the scary thing is, I may not know about it, 
your wife or your husband may not know about it, your kids may not know. They may get that something not right, but they don't really know. And it's between you and God. In order to fix that harmony, you're probably gonna have to find somebody that you can confess it to, repent of it, and begin to fill in the hole below the surface and bring harmony, consistency between who you are on the inside and the outside. And lastly, the soul needs connection. Our souls need restoration, they need harmony, but they also need connection. You were made to make connections. It says in uh, in the book as well, last quote, the soul seeks to connect us with other people, with creation, and with God himself, who made us to be rooted in him the way a tree is rooted by a life-giving stream. I like the fact that he says that we're, we're made to be connected to nature because I think that's true for, for a lot of us. I know it's true for me. If I see a beautiful sunset or a beautiful picture of an ocean or some beautiful mountains, something just kind of settles inside of me. Have you ever felt that way before? You're just like, you know, like everything you've been thinking about or you're worried about or what's coming just kind of gets dissolved over the beauty of that moment. God's given us creation to, to remind us in those moments that we are connected to something bigger than ourselves. And, who you are as a being is meant to be connected to God, to, to this world that he's created for you and to connected to others. And our, and, our, and, our, and our world today sadly has so shrunk sex and so shrunk, shrunk relationships just to being about physical acts. That's what we talked about a few weeks ago. That, that, that article revealed that people are dissatisfied in their relationships, their sex life and all these different things. And it's because you can do all these things in your body but not be connected by your soul, by your personhood. And so therefore we left empty and we think it must be the person, it must be the sex, it must be the job, it must be the relationships. And it's because we're not connecting as a whole person so we continue to blame what's on the outside instead of looking to what's on the inside. You're made to be connected to people. You're made to be connected to God. You're the keeper of your soul and you alone are responsible for making sure that your soul is restored, that it's in harmony and that it's connected. But I wanna, I wanna, I wanna finish with this. It's, it's a dual responsibility to be the keeper of your soul. You are supposed to do that and help foster and create a, a healthy soul inside of you. But the one thing you can't do is you can't save your soul. You can't save your soul. You can't do it all. It has to start with a soul that's been redeemed. So let me finish with Psalm 49. The writer says, why should I fear in times of trouble when iniquity, the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Basically, I'm being tempted to turn and do these things, but why should I? They trust in their wealth and boast in their abundant riches, yet these cannot redeem a person, when that word for person is soul. These cannot redeem a soul or pay his ransom to God since the price of redeeming him or her is too costly. One should forever stop trying so that they may live forever and not see the pit. The Bible says it's a, it's a fruitless endeavor. It's a waste of endeavor to think you can save your soul. SOS only goes out to Jesus. Save my soul, God. Redeem my personhood. Genesis 2 says that, that the man and the woman were just dust of the ground and they became a human being, a human soul when God breathed his spirit into that lifeless dust form that he formed. But through our disconnection, our sin, we've been disconnected from God and our soul and our, and our bodies. Yeah, we're alive, but it's like we have Alzheimer's because of sin. We have lost who we are as a person and our soul is fragmented and broken and it controls us and makes us into the person that we were not made by God. And the way that we get changed is by going back and seeing what God did in Genesis and coming back to Jesus again and say, breathe your spirit on me and may your spirit bring my soul back to life and make me into the person you want me to be. It starts with him. 
starts with acknowledging that today. Would you stand to your feet? Let's close in prayer. Close your eyes with me for a moment. I know there's probably a few of you here where you're doing your best to try to redeem your life, redeem your soul. You're doing your best to work on all that outer stuff and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. God made you to accomplish things and be a part of things, but that stuff cannot pay for your soul. It cannot change your soul. It cannot redeem your soul. And for those of you who that's true, man, God offers you an amazing thing today. He says, man, I'll save your soul. I'll transform your soul and I'll fill my spirit into your life that you can become that person that you know you really want to be on the inside but never could do on your own. We're not made to live disconnected from God but connected from him. So let's pray this prayer all together. Would you say, dear Heavenly Father, say it louder, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for life, for making me. Thank you for sending your son Jesus that could give me new life. But Father, today I need your help. My insides are empty. There are cavities and holes that need to be filled. And I understand that you first have to fill them by your spirit. So I ask that you would come into my life by your spirit and make me new today. Take away my sins and give me new life. In Jesus' name. Keep your eyes closed. You know, the Bible says it's that simple. You know it's that simple, church. God's just awaiting someone to say, my inner life is dead without you, and so come and fill it. And you just did. If you're here today and and you say that prayer, and you don't just say it because I told you to, but you're saying it because you really, you mean it today. You've never said it before. Maybe it's been a really long time, but today you're saying, man, I really mean that. I, I really want God to come in and fill my my life with his spirit. I believe that he has forgiven me and that grace and forgiveness only comes through Jesus Christ. If, if you're saying that and you believe that today, God says you're, you're a changed person. Your insides have now been filled by his spirit. And I believe there might be some of you today right now that are doing that. And no one's looking around right now, but I'd like to know if you said that prayer for the first time or maybe for a long time and you just want to acknowledge, man, I really meant that and, and I, I pray that re- God really came into my life right there. Would you lift your hand, look up at me? I just want to pray for you before you go. Yeah, I see it right there, and for you right there, yeah. For you, sir, right there, yeah. You, ma'am, in the back, yeah, and you as well, amen. Yeah, who else? Yeah, anybody else? I don't want to miss you. Man, God, God takes every single one of our words like that seriously. Lord, thank you for these, these four or five. Lord, fill them right now with your spirit. May they know, Lord, even though not everything changes, everything immediately right now, may they know as they walk out of here today, something's different on the inside. We thank you for that. You put your hands down. Real quick before you go, though, oh, man, my heart aches for some of you who, who just have sinkholes right now in your inside. No one knows it. But, man, don't leave today with the edge of the foundation of your life teetering over a crevasse that you may just fall into and be destroyed. Man, God wants to rescue you, and I just I sense you're so tired, you're so dry, you feel so far from God, even though you still believe in Him. You you feel so far from your spouse, even though you're still choosing to love him or her. You feel so disconnected from 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 God, from others, and and yet 
and yet, you know, you know you're not going anywhere, but right now is the opportunity to say, God, would you help reconnect and fill my soul back up with you? If that's you, you don't need to look up at me, but would you just lift your hand up and leave it up for just a moment? I want to pray over you. Leave it up for a moment. Man, God, come and replenish me. I'm dry and I'm, I'm empty. Keep your hands up for a second. Holy Spirit, come, I pray right now and fill these people, Lord, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. God, forgive us for blaming externals and blaming other things and pretending to not be ourselves. Lord, those words, those frustrations, those angers, those fears, those worries are coming, Lord, from inside. And right now we lift our hands and say, God, come and change me on the inside. We don't lift our hands because it's weak. We lift our hands in strength saying, God, we can't do this. And that's the greatest act of strength we could ever do. And so come in right now by your spirit with each of these people, God, and bring a change today. May this week even be different because of it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, God bless you. I'm excited about this series. We're going to have some people down here that would love to pray with you. Man, don't leave if we can pray with you today and just help encourage you on the inside before you, you go. And I, I pray you have a great day off tomorrow, and we will see you next Sunday. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.